we're getting close to the end. We're getting close not only to the end of the book of Mark, but what that means is that we're getting close to the end of um, the death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. Um, Everything that Jesus has been talking about over the course of this book has led us to these final chapters that we're in right now, dealing with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that's what our faith is built upon. And so what I want to challenge us with today is um, that as we wrap up over the next few weeks, as we wrap up the book of Mark, These stories are probably, if you're familiar with anything in the Bible, you're familiar most likely with these stories. And so it would be easy to casually read these scriptures and think that you've got it. You've heard this before. You know the story. um, And, you know, you you don't really need to dwell too much more on it. And so I want to encourage us to just kind of push back on that attitude and that posture towards scripture. Instead, what I want us to do is approach these passages, these stories, especially the stories we're reading today, with reverence and curiosity and wonder. Allow these chapters to soak into your soul, especially these next few weeks as we're preparing to celebrate Easter as a church family. These passages matter because this is a story that changes everything for us. So don't become so familiar with it that it completely passes over you. So today we're looking at the first 42 verses of chapter 14, and there's a lot going on in this passage um, with Jesus. He's anointed by a woman. He is betrayed by Judas. He shares this powerful last meal with his disciples. He addresses Peter um, and his own denial. And then we see Jesus himself struggle um, this really beautiful, really heartbreaking scene in a garden. And the whole time, with all of these little stories, the cross is in the background. And what is happening here is Mark chapter 14 is giving us a glimpse into the faithfulness of Jesus, his deep, unshakable commitment to his Father, and to his Father's glory, and to his Father's plans, and to his Father's timing. Jesus shows us in these passages what faithfulness to God looks like over and over through the pages of Scripture, and it shines so brightly in this chapter. So I want us to really just focus on Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus and see that in contrast to all of these stories where we see unfaithfulness as well. So let me pray for us as we walk through it. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage of scripture, um, just the, the, the richness, being able to see the character of Jesus, his faithfulness, his tenderness, his humanity, and his divinity. Lord, I pray that we would just um, continue to focus on this passage of scripture in a way that you reveal new things to us that we wouldn't be so casual with your word to think that we already understand and we already know it, but that trust and believe that you have something for us today, that you are always seeking to transform us into your image um, through your word. And so I ask that you would do that today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so starting um, in the beginning... Verse 1, Mark starts by telling us that it's two days before Passover, and the chief priests are trying to figure out how to arrest Jesus, but they've decided that they're not going to do it during this celebration. 
Why? Well, because there would be an influx of people, lots of travelers coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. They don't want to do it when the city is full and busy, probably full with a lot of Jesus's followers. These men, these chief priests, they did not value Jesus. They didn't fear God. What they feared were the crowds. They feared the supporters of Jesus who might riot. So instead, they make a plan to avoid arresting Jesus on the Passover, during the Passover feast. But God's plan, God's plan is that Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, would be killed on Passover as the ultimate fulfillment of his plan of redemption. So as we step into this passage further, we see contrasting responses to Jesus and his lordship, specifically between this woman and the disciples and Judas. So look with me in verse 3, and I'm going to read this for us a little bit. So while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, in the NIV, it, talks, it calls it perfume, uh, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. How do you react to this scene? Do you find yourself connecting with the woman whose actions overflow from a heart of worship? Or do you relate more to the disciples who are confused, who are frustrated, who are irritated with what she has done. It doesn't make sense. Why would she waste that? How much good could she have done with that money? Think of what she could have done if she had just sold it. Where do you find yourself in that story? Demonstrating that costly, extravagant love for Jesus? That should be the norm for believers, not the exception. And what Jesus does is he says that she did this to prepare him for burial. Did she understand what she was doing? I don't know. Maybe. Probably not. It's certainly not clear that she knew what she was doing um, in that regard. But by preparing him for burial, she essentially anoints him king. And Jesus loves her for it. Now think about this. When do you prepare a body for burial? Prepare the body after the person has died. So put yourselves in the disciples' shoes in this moment, this experience. He allows and he welcomes what we would consider um, a morbid act to do. Jesus, you're really telling us that she has prepared your body for burial? If it's a lot for us to take in, imagine being the disciples in that room. But Jesus is faithfully, faithfully moving towards his father's plan. And while many around him, even many of those closest to him, they don't get it, God graciously still provides someone to show extravagant love to him, to be motivated by that love, to minister to Jesus in the time of preparation for him to die. 
she still meets him with love. But then in contrast, we have Judas. Judas, Judas, Judas. We know the fuller picture of this story right now. You know, we have the more information than we get in, when you're just reading Mark. So we know um, how this ends for Judas. Judas leaves, and he makes a deal with the chief priests. He agrees to turn Jesus in for an exchange of money. Other scriptures, um, other gospels say it was 30 pieces of silver. That's it. 30 pieces of silver. That's, about, that's equal to about four months of wages. That's it. That was the cost of Jesus to Judas. In comparison, the woman's perfume was worth over a year's wages. The costly offering of devotion that the woman poured out on Jesus stands in stark contrast to the price of betrayal paid to Judas. And we read this, and we think, no, Judas, don't do it. We don't know what motivated him. Was he tired of Jesus talking about his death? Did he finally realize the power that he was hoping to have from following Jesus was not going to end up being this political power the way that he thought? Did he think that Jesus just wasn't worth it anymore? Maybe he thought if Jesus really is going to die, maybe he just wanted to cut his losses. Because what good is a dead king after all? And do I want to be attached with this? Was Jesus just a means to an end to him? We don't know what his motive was, but what we do know is that unlike the woman with the perfume, it was not worship for Jesus. The woman's motive was worship, and that was not his. So in what ways and at what cost are you willing to express your love for Jesus? What motivates you? Do we only love Jesus when we feel that we are benefiting from his love? I think the truth is, we don't want to resonate with Judas. We don't want to identify with him. But we do need to understand something about him and how it relates to us. We are all capable of sin. And it's tempting to think, well, I'm not like Judas. I've never done something so terrible. And that's, that's so good. <laughs> Let's not be like Jesus, Judas in identifying with these terrible, terrible things. But in order to have a worshipful response like this woman, we have to understand that we are capable of sin like Judas. Because to understand grace, we have to understand sin. And to accept grace, we have to accept our capability to sin. Understanding our sin is what leads us to accept his grace. This is the essence of communion, which is established for us in this next passage. And I, so I just love the flow of this passage Jesus directs his disciples following this interaction um, after the woman at, uh, with the 
perfume and after Judas going and making a deal, he then directs his disciples to the upper room to prepare them for the Passover meal. And this is a big deal, um, what's actually happening here. So let's unpack a little bit what the Passover means. If you guys were around last year when Ashley helped us walk through this, it was so helpful and enlightening. Um, so who can summarize, or who, who knows here, um, the Jewish celebration, what Passover meant? Why this was such a big deal? Like, what were they celebrating? I don't have the elementary kids in here to fill. I, I like, knew that they would be able to answer all this. Does anyone remember? Yeah. Yeah, it, it basically, it like commemorates the act of salvation in the history of Israel. Like, they're, you know, being saved from Egypt, from slavery, after 400 years of captivity. Um, and so what is happening here is that the first Passover was held on the night before a great deliverance from physical slavery, and that's what they're preparing to celebrate, that the Jewish people celebrated year after year. What the disciples didn't realize is this Passover meal was held on the night before an even greater deliverance. Nobody saw it coming except for Jesus. So listen to this dinner conversation that they're having here in verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So again, we know the whole story. So we read this, and we know that Jesus is talking about Judas when he says, one of you will betray me. But that's not how the disciples respond. I think this is so interesting to notice in Scripture. They don't all point fingers at him and say, I knew it. I knew it was you. This is, this is your fault. You're the bad egg in here. They don't say that. It seems to me that by all appearances, he wasn't any different from the rest of them. Which makes his betrayal all the more confusing and heartbreaking. What was going on within his soul? What motivated him? One commentary I read said, Jesus wasn't trying to be passive-aggressive here with Judas, which we know, right? That's not his character. Instead, what he's doing here is he's offering an opportunity for repentance. But Judas misses it. Jesus was intentionally vague with him. Imagine the other scenarios if he hadn't been. Had he called Judas out in front of everyone, if he would have said, Judas is going to betray me, well, Judas would have felt shame and embarrassment. Had Jesus said nothing, there would never have been an opportunity at all for repentance. Judas would, would have thought he was in the clear, that he was going to get away with it. But because Jesus was being ambiguous, being gentle and tender and thoughtful, he leaves the door open for repentance. But Judas doesn't take that chance. Do not miss your opportunities for repentance. 
We as followers of Jesus should be the first to be able to say, I was wrong. I made a mistake. Forgive me. Help me. Don't miss your opportunities for repentance when they come. When I read this story, when I read this story with the kids recently, they said, Bell said, what I think most of us think, actually, why would Jesus let Judas still eat with him? Have you ever thought about that? Who wants to share any meal, let alone your last one, with the man who would betray you? But that's Jesus for you. He's nothing like us. And I love seeing that in scripture. Jesus ate this last meal with his disciples, all of them, including his betrayer, just hours before he would go to the cross. And at that, on that night, Jesus chose to give new meaning to this ancient Passover story that they all knew so well. He took the story of God's redemption for the Israelites, and he uses it to explain his mission, his life, his death, and our redemption through his blood. He says these strange words, starting in verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in a Passover meal, the one leading it would pass the bread, saying, This is the bread of our affliction. But Jesus says here, He's essentially saying, this is the bread of my affliction. And as he broke the bread, saying, this is my body. And throughout a Passover meal, um, there were four cups of wine passed around, one for sanctification, one for deliverance, one for redemption, and one for praise. And so many people see Jesus here passing this third cup of redemption, uh, and he gives it new meaning by saying, drink it from all. Drink from all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So at this supper, Jesus is telling his disciples, he is the promise of redemption from sin for God's people. Jesus' blood was poured out to fulfill the old covenant of sacrifices and to welcome us into the new covenant. As Jesus broke the bread and he poured out the wine at this last Passover meal, he declared the covenant renewal that would bring about ultimate freedom from slavery and ultimate forgiveness of sins. This is what we mean when we say he is our redeemer. When we say that, what we're talking about is to redeem is to gain possession of something at a cost. So for Jesus, he redeemed us with his very blood, his life, And this can be really hard to grasp. Certainly the disciples struggled to grasp it. But our inability to comprehend it does not make it any less true. Jesus died, and his death paid the price for our sin, a price we could never pay, so that we are delivered from the grip of sin and redeemed back into relationship with God. At the heart of our salvation 
is a redeemer who delivered us from sin into freedom. Do we understand our redemption? I heard it said earlier this week that what good would our redemption be if you could lose it in a day? But honestly, aren't we so tempted to have such a low view of Jesus to think that what he did on the cross could be voided out by us? Nothing can remove his love. Nothing can remove his love from you. Is there a part of your life that you feel is not redeemed? Or you think it's too big, it's too bad, it's too much, it's too messy. It cannot be redeemed. And that just isn't true. Who are we to think that God has a limit to his redemption? Your failures and your mistakes do not diminish your worth because Jesus established your worth by his sacrifice. Your worth is not based on what you do or what you don't do, but your worth is based on what has already been done on the cross by your Redeemer, Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Before the cross, we were headed for death. But because of the cross, we now have life. So up until this point in the passage, all of these actions have been preparing for the cross, whether it's preparing a body, preparing for a betrayal, or preparing hearts to simply receive and understand their coming redemption. The cross has been getting closer and closer and closer. But how do you really prepare for what's coming? And I'm so grateful for this next section of scripture where we see what it looks like to process hardship and to process pain and suffering and submission and obedience. In verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples, you will all fall away. Every one of you will desert me. But he also tells them in verse 28, excuse me, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And I just love this. Because what we see here is that in his kindness, he's not leaving them with nothing. He tells them, once more, I'm going to rise. My death will not be the end. He's still offering them hope. And he knows that unlike Judas, that they are going to learn to follow him again. But Peter, we know Peter, we know what he does. He's indignant, right? He's never, I'm never going to leave you. I don't need to learn how to follow you again. I know how to follow you. And I believe that Peter is sincere. I do think that Peter means those words. But Jesus tells him, no, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. Can you imagine the heartache in that conversation? Peter, sincerely believing that he will be loyal to the end. And I wonder if he felt hurt by Jesus in that conversation. Why would you think I would leave you? I love you. 
And Jesus, who knows the truth, how sad it must have felt to him to see his friend Peter believe so sincerely that he would never abandon him, knowing that that is exactly what he was about to do. What kind of loneliness must Jesus have felt? And yet he walks forward in obedience, knowing that what's coming was going to be unimaginably painful, knowing that his disciples, they're all going to scatter, knowing that one would deny him. And on the heels of that interaction with Peter, we come to one of the most touching passages in Scripture, Jesus in the garden. Now, we tend to see Jesus uh, as primarily divine, capable of dealing with anything that comes his way. But Jesus is also completely human, and we see it so clearly in this passage. Jesus led his disciples to the garden, and then he seeks strength in community as he takes Peter, James, and John a little further with him to pray. Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he says to them, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus invites his closest companions into his pain. They're not going to be able to walk through the pain with him, but they can watch and they can pray alongside him. They can minister to him in his pain through prayer. Just as the woman ministered to him in preparation, they can minister to him as they watch and pray. And what's happening here, what I think is happening here, is that Jesus is breaking. He is full of sorrow. He is hurting. He is overwhelmed. He is troubled. We have always seen him so composed until now. Have you ever seen someone close to you break? I have this memory. I have, after my grandpa passed away a few years ago, I remember being in my mom's room, um, helping her decide what to wear for the funeral. And I have, I, it's just this core memory that she just couldn't take it. And I remember seeing her kind of wander away from her closet and just double over in, on the bed and just break, just lose it, sobbing, feeling such grief. And I didn't know what to do. I had never seen my mom in that state before. She was always so strong and so secure, so put together. How do you handle seeing someone fall apart? I don't think the disciples knew what to do. How do you handle seeing Jesus fall apart? He's God, but he is also fully human. And we are watching him in this passage be fully human. Right now, he is processing the reality that he knows that he is going to save and rescue others by not being saved himself. Consider the way that Jesus prays. 
There are three times of prayer. It says that he prays three times here. Read with me the first time Jesus prays in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's asking here, if it's possible, can there be another way? He doesn't want this. He says, remove this. And he tells God how he feels. He didn't want to drink the cup. He was not boldly, heroically asking to do this. No, he was a man, a human, melting down. Well, I see this. Do you know that your feelings are safe with God? Jesus leads here by example. He is honest in prayer because prayer is a safe place for us. If Jesus can be that honest, we can too. Jesus tells God his desires and he asks to not go to the cross, to remove this cup. And also, ultimately, Jesus gives God his trust. He says, not my will, but yours. And so when we pray, we can pray like Jesus. Prayer is a safe place to be honest with our emotions and sincere with our desires. And we can trust God, and we can learn to trust God in it all. We follow the faithful, submissive, loving example of Jesus, and we say, not my will, but yours be done. The reality is that there is an aspect of faithfulness that is lonely and weighty. And our Father invites us to trust him, even when it's lonely, even when it's weighty, even when pain is involved. Jesus in the garden wrestles with something that we will never have to wrestle with. And Jesus faithfully submitted to God's redemptive plans despite the pain of obedience. And we too, though, still have our own dark nights. And this isn't to say that we understand Jesus' pain, because how could we possibly? It's to say that he understands our pain. Jesus is no stranger to the pain and the fear of the human condition. It is in the darkness that our deepest fears arrive. When anxiety and worry pump through us, preventing us from sleep, when grief takes over and it just feels so unbearable, what have those days, those nights, those seasons, what have those things looked like for you? Maybe it is the loss of a loved one, grieving death. Maybe it's the pain of a difficult marriage or a wayward child. Maybe it's the sorrow of lost dreams or broken expectations. Maybe it's physical suffering or a damaged relationship or words that can't be taken back. We all know what those dark nights have been for us. And in those nights, we wonder, why does it have to be this way? Does it have to be this way? 
Make it stop, Lord. Is God going to do something? But God did do something. He made a way through the dark night because his son Jesus faithfully submitted to the Father's will so that we might be redeemed. God joins us in our dark nights. He's not like the disciples who fall asleep. He's with us. You can trust Jesus with your doubt or your temptations, your fears, your grief. He understands. We are not just redeemed for life after death, but we are redeemed for our life right now. Our redemption in Christ is about so much more than just being free from the debt of our sins. Our redemption sets us free to live a new life in Christ, walking with him. It doesn't mean that there will be no more dark nights. But in our dark nights, we are not alone. We are with Jesus, who understands. He is always, always faithful to us. Jesus wrestled with a choice that none of us will ever face. He willingly sacrificed his life and endured God's wrath, but that is not the end of the story. The pain will get greater, but victory is coming. His victory over sin and death that leads to our redemption, all of that, that depended on his submission to the will of the Father. Jesus faithfully submitted to the Father so that we may be redeemed. No one has ever or will ever love us like Jesus has. And so we get to take communion now to pause and reflect on that. And this is what Jesus was getting at during that Last Supper. He transformed this Passover meal to say that the new Passover is about to happen. And so when we share this meal, when you and I participate in communion, every time you will remember the victory of the final undoing of slavery and the ultimate forgiveness of sins, and the expectation that the king will one day return. So right now, as a family, let's take the bread that represents his body and dip it into the wine that represents his blood. Take it, eat, drink, and remember your redemption in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for making a way for our redemption. Thank you for Jesus' great love to faithfully submit to the cross so that we may be redeemed for being with us for loving us like no one else may we not forget our redemption our salvation and your great love for us and it's in your name I pray amen